Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warriors. If you're new here, I want to welcome and thank you for giving us a chance to earn your attention and for lending us your ears. And the only non-renewable resource you've got, that is your time. Today is a fun interview that I got a chance to have thanks to my friend Katie at Ally when I was down in Houston at Sarah Week. Now, if you haven't heard of Sarah Week, I want you to subscribe so that you can hear our hot take sort of takeaways and recap of Sarah Week coming up on this coming Tuesday by none other than Megan Nutting of Sonova, Abby Hopper of Sia, and Claire Brodo Johnson of Fermata. Truly rock stars in the industry. But our guest today is a rock star in many different industries. And I was truly, really honored to be able to interview her from the top of the Petroleum Club building, which is in the Total building, downtown Houston, a few weeks ago while I was in Houston for Sarah Week. Christine Todd Whitman, I go into detail about her background, but she was the former administrator for the EPA under the Bush administration. She was the governor of New Jersey, the 50th governor of New Jersey. She has such deep experience building consensus, offering regulatory improvements, and protecting our environment. Stick around. You're not going to want to miss this interview with Christine Todd Whitman. I want to thank you for taking time out of your day to join us. If you haven't yet checked out more than 550 additional clean energy founder stories and startup advice, you can do so at mysuncast.com where our whole entire back catalog is housed. Make sure you're subscribed right there in your podcast player. But for now, get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune into another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Today, our expert is going to guide us through the political landscape but also has deep experience in navigating multiple sides of, uh, let's say, the aisle, as it were, and helping move decisions forward. I have the pleasure, thanks to my friend Katie Minner at Ally, of sitting down with Christine Todd Whitman, who served as the 50th governor of New Jersey, as administrator of the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, under the George W. Bush administration and is now, as many of you will recognize, the co-chair of the Forward Party. She's got a lot to say and loves to champion not just climate action, but clean energy. Christy, it is so good to see you. That's a pleasure. Good to be with you. Nice to be here in Houston, even though, well, now the, now the fog is lifting. It's lifting. <laughs> we, we could have had a worse view. No, it's a nice, it's a nice view. Governor Whitman, I'm curious if you could take me back to the moment where you first realized that you had aspirations for a political career. Well, I grew up in a very political family and I'm the youngest of four by eight years. So I was the one that was around the dining room table when it was just my parents and me. And so they were discussing what was going on in the world and what was going on in the state and locally. They were both very involved in politics. And so I grew up loving 
issues. Uh, the issues are what drove me. When I went to college, I majored in international government because I figured I'd been so steeped in regular politics and domestic politics that I figured, as every arrogant 18-year-old does, that I knew enough that I could properly teach the course. But uh, no, I never thought that. But uh, what I really didn't know was international. And so uh, and I'd lived abroad at that point and, and really was interested in it. So anyway, I majored in that. And well, when we got married, my husband said it was for better, for worse or for politics, because I had worked in politics and all my life at that point. I had gone from uh, after I graduated down to Washington, worked for a congressperson. I had a variety of jobs. That's the one thing that I loved about politics because I have a short attention span. I like going up the learning curve. And so you can move around in jobs with politics and they don't think you can't keep a job. Mm-hmm. You're just adding to your resume or doing something different. So oh, that's good news for all the folks in the solar industry right. who, <laughs> on the solar coaster are using it as a way to lever up their titles. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So anyway, I was able to, it just kind of grew. And then um, when I came, my husband and I moved to England after we were married and for two and a half years. And when we came back, I was asked to to be on the county board of, well, actually the community college board, which I did because that introduced me to, they reintroduced me to the people in the county and everything. And then I was asked to be a county commissioner. We called them freeholders in New Jersey in those yeah. days, but now we've gotten with it. And so we're, they're county commissioners. And that was my first elective office. You know, over time, I did a bunch of different things. I actually was president of the state board of public utilities appointed by the then governor, a Republican Tom Kane. And so became a member of his cabinet doing that. And I will tell you, I knew nothing about regulating utilities at Mm. that point. But I figured one part of the things that we did regulate uh, in New Jersey then was garbage. And I had had an involvement with that as a freeholder. So I didn't know that much. And I figured I could learn the rest. Uh, I said, you know, I'll learn on the job. I'll find the people who know what they're talking about. And so I sat down with each one of the department heads and said, what are the biggest issues that you see coming at you? And whether it be telephone or garbage or electricity or, you know, whatever it was, and managed as president of that for two and a half years before I was asked to run for the Senate. And the reason I ran for the, accepted that because I knew I wasn't going to win that particular race was because by then I decided the best job in, in the state would be governor. And I really wasn't happy with what was happening in the state under the existing governor, the governor at the time. And so, uh, well, at that point, you know, we had a year or two in between. But anyway, I, so I ran for the Senate. I was defeated, but I was defeated by such a small margin given the expectations because the incumbent had been, had beaten his first primary, his first general election, re-election campaign. He defeated his, his uh, opponent by 16 percentage points. Everybody thought that was going to happen to me because he was extremely well known and going to be the next Democrat presidential candidate. And so I came close enough. He had 12 million. I had less than a million. But I came close enough because of the incumbent governor being so unpopular and raised taxes on everything. And so I kept asking the U.S. senator what he thought of the taxes. And I woke up every morning saying, when's he going to tell me? I hate taxes as much as the next person, although he rewrote the tax code, um, income tax code at the federal level. So he couldn't say he hated them. But, you know, I understand how difficult taxes are for people, but I've got to respect the governor. He knows the budget. And then we would have been I would have been gone because we didn't disagree on a lot of issues. But he never did it, which was surprising. That led me, made the race close enough that I was a viable candidate. I could stay going the next two years around the state. I set up a 
a PAC so I could help local candidates mostly doing research, issue research for them they couldn't do on their own. Did as much of that as I could. That gave me the ability to run for governor three years later. I'm going to backtrack a little bit there. You grew up on a farm in New Jersey. Mm -hmm. And you brought us forward to a time where it was just you in the house. Parents were talking about politics. But I get the sense that you're from a slightly larger family than that. Were you in your childhood exposed to a working farm? Is it? Oh, yes. Yeah. It still is a working farm. Oh, yes. We used to bring in the hay and go out, go out and stuff. So the worst was being in the hayloft, taking the bales off of the elevator, bringing yes. them up and stacking them. And then you'd, then you'd just get all that hay and down your shirt and everywhere. And it, Everyone who's been there is, yeah, is scratching exactly. themselves it's right scratchy. now. Exactly. It's scratching. Yeah, it was, it was not a... That was not my favorite job. Yeah. <laughs> the oats yeah. were all right, but that was not my favorite job. The hay was not. Mm. And it's still a working farm. So I was able to see the impact the, up close and personal of what humans have on the environment yeah. and understand the fragility of the environment right. and how, how much we can change things and how easily and how careful we have to be. So it was something that uh, just became, and I, my parents were very outdoors people. And so we did a lot of fishing and hunting and all sorts of things like that. And dad and, and mom also, but my father particularly said, never always leave a place better off than you found it. So that's sort of been my ethos as far as the environment and things like that are concerned. You have a little credibility protecting the environment. Yeah, we did a lot of it when I was governor because, you know, New Jersey is the most densely populated state in the nation. Yeah. Tell me some of the initiatives that you took as governor that... I'd say raised your visibility at a national level for the your your your, your position your stance on. Well, start probably our, the our first climate. one was winning a lawsuit against New York to stop them dumping their garbage in our waters, and then I we developed the most comprehensive beach monitoring program. We have 127 miles of, of shoreline and beaches in, in New Jersey, and the National Resources Defense Councils gave us an award while I was governor for developing the most the best beach monitoring program in the country. And then um, probably the biggest thing I'm known for is shepherding through a uh, billion-dollar bond issue to save a million acres of open space. Because we are the most densely populated state in the nation, there's a lot of pressure, yeah. and particularly on farmland. And so this bond issue, what we did, we, I had put a commission together saying, give me a plan to save that makes sense to save open space, not just to save open space, but farmland. And, and so that it, there was a, put together a great group shepherded by a woman who was passionate on the area. Had been in, um, she was an assemblywoman, Maureen Ogden. And she put together the, she and the commission put together the plan and we worked on it. She originally wanted me to raise taxes to pay for it. And I said, uh-uh, not doing that. <laughs> Since I was elected on platform of reducing taxes, which is what I did. And it worked. So we put it to a bond issue, but it, it said what it did is it, it identified areas in the state where you had heavy farming, where you wanted to make it contiguous so the farmers could move from one field to the other sure. without having to go cross highways where it made sense. We identified a lot areas where parks could be expanded appropriately, did a lot of rail to trail because we had a lot of abandoned railroad areas, and then also set aside money for urban parks. So there was a, it was really focused. There were different focus areas so that everybody could benefit in a way from what we were doing. It wasn't just let's have open space. It was very focused open space. When you were the president of the Public Utility Commission, Freeholders, how did you begin to wrap your head around the challenge facing 
the electrical infrastructure just for New Jersey and then more broadly? Well, it was a it was a challenge, obviously, because I was not steeped in that field at all. But we had some ex- very capable people on the board and the staff, and I spent as much time as I could to learn from them. And obviously, our biggest challenges then were things like LIHEAP and ensuring that, that people were covered during the winter months, uh, working with the utilities. When I became governor, one of the things we did is when we deregulated the utility industry, we did put in a requirement, and this was, you know, back before climate change was as big a recognized, let me say, issue as it is today. We did put in a requirement that the utilities have a percentage of renewable energy because it was coming. We saw it and um, we understood that we have to really try to promote and encourage innovation because there wasn't a lot of solar. There wasn't a lot of talk of solar. We didn't have the solar panels. We weren't talking about windmills at that point because this was back in 1998, I guess, back in those days. And it was, uh, it was something that was not, as I say, as universally recognized as this enormous problem that we had. And then the other, but Kyoto was coming. That was actually more when I was governor. Right. And Kyoto being 94, correct? Yeah. You were governor from 94 to 2000, 2001. Yeah. And so the previous was 19, actually it was 1988 that I was chairman of the Board of Public Utilities, 87, 88. So it was early on when we did the, started looking at what was happening with the energy field. And that was when they were starting to negotiate things like uh, international treaties to address it, but it didn't come in until uh, later on. And even at that time when I was governor, I was one of those that said, I wouldn't support it as it is written today. I like the, I agree with the idea that there has to be an international agreement on what needs to be done to address the issue. But the way the treaty was structured at that time, leaving out China and India and any developing countries that I said, that, that's, that's not acceptable. That isn't, that's not going to work. It was something that you then said, okay, well, what do you do? And, but as governor, that was not my number one problem. In 2001, you resigned as governor to become administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency right. under uh, George W. Bush. At that time, do you recall the fundamental problems that you encountered at EPA with regards to what was being addressed, what the EPA was trying to accomplish as, at a macro scale? Well, the EPA, and I was told, watch out, you got a lot of tree huggers and a lot of people who try to undo anything you want to do. I found yeah. people who were dedicated to the mission of EPA, which is to pray, protect human health and the environment, period, the end. And they may not agree with how you wanted to do it, but if they were convinced that you were serious, they'd support you. I mean, sure, we had some of those that were just rabid, deep down Democrats who were never going to approve of anything that a Republican did. But at that point in time, too, don't forget, when I went into office in 2001 was when you were having the rolling brownouts in California, and there was a great concern that those were going to shift into blackouts and you were going to have a major problem. So the president set up the Energy Task Force, and I was on that. It was chaired by the vice president. And the very first meeting that we had, they said, well, I mean, the problem in California is the utilities are not bringing on more sources. They're not generating more sources because of EPA regulation. It's all EPA's fault. Mm-hmm. So I said, okay, give me a list of the projects that have been submitted that are not going anywhere, and yeah. I will put them to the top of the list. They'll have to go through the same process, but we'll, we'll move them on. We'll get them done. Not a single one was brought in. 
because that wasn't the problem. The right. problem was an economic decision by the utilities that they didn't want to bring, they didn't need to bring on any more power. Right. They didn't want to bring on, I mean, I don't know what they're figuring, but it was their decision. There wasn't a single project that was brought to me to say, this is one that's been held up. This is what we want to do, but EPA regulations are keeping us from doing it. So it was very much, a, it was an eye-opening, shall we say. Learned a lot about managing expectations, I'm certain, mm-hmm. and, uh, and navigating the, the context within which issues were being raised. Hey, can I borrow your attention for just one minute? How many of you in the residential solar install game right now would really say that your workflow is built to win? You know, in the 2010s, solar was all about sales. I think that the winners of the 2020s is really going to be contractors that focus on operational efficiency. See, margins are getting squeezed and there's a ton of competition out there, but everyone has an opportunity to improve. Would you like to know the score of the value of your survey and design process? Would you like to hear about the evolution of the installer workflow? Well, then I would encourage you to join myself and my friend Jason Steinberg from Scanifly next Wednesday, the 31st of May at 2 p.m. Eastern time. Or maybe it's this Wednesday, or maybe you already missed it and you need to go see the replay at any point. You are going to benefit from the insights that we're going to reveal the benefits of a tech-driven solar ops program, the transition from manual to digital surveys. It's all there. I hope that you will check in, tune in, register, and uh, throw us some hard questions. We always love it in our live broadcasts. Join us May 31st, 2 p.m. with Scanifly. See you there. Hey, I know you are a savvy listener. Heck, you're listening to Suncast, and you've probably, as a result, heard of a little company called SunGrow. If you're not using SunGrow inverters on your projects, I would love to better understand why. They are the inverter of choice for many of the EPCs that I know. SunGrow is the number one in gigawatts deployed. They've got the top bankability in the industry. Hexsolve uses them for the majority of their projects. And you may not even know, but SunGrow has the largest R&D team in the power electronics industry. These three Key points alone have convinced most of the major U.S. developers to prefer SunGrow. They now experience a diversified supply chain, local service team, patented containerized product, all with their seamless, pain-free commissioning. Look, imitation is the highest form of flattery. So why spend all of your cycles on what inverter to use when the largest EPC in the land has already done the heavy lifting for you? You can have their same experience for your projects. See how at mysuncast.com forward slash sungrow. I wonder if you reflect on your time at the EPA and consider there to be a crowning or several crowning achievements of that time that, that you would consider the seeds planted. We did get the first major uh, environmental piece of legislation through Congress since 1990, when the Clean Air Act amendments were gotten through, and that was for brownfield sites redevelopment. Brownfield sites being, as you know, the lesser polluted sites, usually in downtown cities that were just eyesores, abandoned gas stations and things. And so we got a bill through, similar to what we'd done in New Jersey already, to put some protection for those who wanted to come in and and redevelop them, but it had nothing to do with the original pollution. So they didn't have to bear the entire cost of of, uh, cleanup. 
The other one would have been um, watershed-based management to allow a utility, for instance, a water utility that was had its plant below ranching or farming and was spending and going to have to spend a great deal of money to get their water up to the clean drinking water standards because of the pollution coming from above them. And we said, look, if it's going to cost you billions to do that, but you can, let's say, let's just pick numbers. It was going to take you 30,000 or 100,000 to clean up, to put all the chemicals, everything you're going to have to do to clean up the water, but you could spend 5,000 by helping the rancher or the farmer refence his fields, his fields so the cattle weren't in the water, drinking in the water, or managing their manure pile, or providing other water. If you could do it, point being, if you could do that more cheaply and reach the clean drinking water standards, rather than having to do it all yourself and putting it on the utility customers so that they were suddenly paying huge amounts of money, then that makes more sense. Let's do that. And so we did that, and, and, it, and it's working. And we did, we did more on that. Those were kind of the big wins. And we had been on some ongoing fights, but we did. We then, within the agency, I mean, one of the things I've always felt is, how do you know you're making progress if you don't know where you're starting? And there'd never been a, a report card on the environment. So I got EPA to do a report card, the scientists. They worked like heck and came up with a very comprehensive, well-documented report card on the status of the environment. The only problem we had was climate change was an issue then. And uh, the administration just wouldn't let me put in the really kind of scientific language that I wanted to put in that, that mirrored the level of, of documentation oh, yeah. and science. Alarm that should have been. Well, it was more to recognize what the science was telling us. Yeah. And so in the end of the day, I had to take out the section on climate change and just put in here are the most recent studies on climate change to raise awareness, but they wouldn't let me put in the stuff that said, hey, we're getting into a crisis point. This is what the science is showing us. Because I didn't want it to undermine, I didn't want to put in something lesser, which is what was being proposed out of the White House, because it would undermine the credibility of all the rest of the scientific work that had gone into the report card. I'm glad that you brought that into view. During the four years of the previous administration prior to President Biden, nearly 700 scientists were let go or left the EPA. I would consider it a devastating blow. It was. To decades of progress. Mm -hmm. And we can talk a bit as well about your vision for the kind of leadership that we need, uh, not just in Washington, but at a national level for a modern political gain around the policies we need to adapt to climate change. But when you think about uh, losing 700 scientists and essentially eroding, uh, if not completely obliterating, what might have been the legacy of the EPA, how do you envision restoring that momentum that we had towards not just a clean energy future, but clean water and clean health? Mm -hmm. Oh, you did. You lost a lot of institutional knowledge, and that's what's so tragic about it. But you've got to move from looking down. I mean, during the previous to the Biden administration, clearly— that administration wanted to do away with the Environmental Protection Agency, no question about it. And it was relegated to the back shelf. Its monies were cut. Um, Science was disregarded and scorned, really. And so it's been good under the Biden administration that science has been elevated again and the agency is being recognized for the importance of the work that it does. But it's going to take several 
years. It's going to take another administration to get it anywhere close to where it was as far as um, the employee base goes and the knowledge that we lost during that during the Trump years, which is a detriment. I mean, I understand nobody likes regulation. I used to think I had a good regulation when both sides were attacking me because then I was right in the middle where I needed to be, where you struck a balance. But it was so hard to see it being dismissed in that way because it's important. I mean, it is human health and the environment protecting it. Did it make mistakes? Of course. Did it overreach at times? Yes. But actually, those were the exception rather than the rule. And a lot of what people object to when they talk about environmental regulation are actually state and local environmental regulations, not federal. And it's trying to say to them, look, you can solve some of these problems by going to your to your state government rather than trying to blame the federal government for everything. But, you know, there were times when we overreached. And that's why I think thought it was so important when we did, for instance, well, to be willing to look and assess the actual on-the-ground impact of a regulation. When we worked out finally a deal with General Electric to clean up the Hudson River, it had been a battle for years, and we finally got them to agree they were the responsible party, and we came to an agreement on how to clean it up. But what I said at the time was, I'm going to put a proviso in this that we have to review it in six months, I think I said. And the environmentalists went nuts because they said it was just to give GE an opportunity to get out of it. And what happened was we looked at it in six months and found that what looked good and if it, and is this, if it would work in the office or in the lab was actually creating more pollution. The way we were dredging was cre- releasing more pollutants than we were taking out. So we went back to the drawing board, redesigned it and went back at them and now it's clean. But you have to be willing to take that look to make sure because, you know, you are not, if you're in a scientist, you may do your best work but you're not the one who's applying it. And you don't necessarily know how it works. It's like a lot of legislators, when they pass bills, they have no clue how to implement them or whether they can work at all. And that's when we get into trouble because a lot of times you can't, or they're very difficult. So those kinds of being willing to look at what you think is a great idea after it's been in place for a while, I think is very important to any policy maker. I wish I had time to just spend our, all of our conversation on the premise of the forward party, why you have aligned with others in political leadership to bring forward a new option mm-hmm. for voters. But if we narrow our focus to just the lens around climate and energy, for the folks that are listening, why is a third option uh, or perhaps a fourth, given independent and, and green party are considered options? I'd love to hear what you all put forth as the core elements of climate and clean energy with regard to the forward party. No, we're different. And the problem I think that we've had with, and we're seeing with the parties today is everything looked, is looked at through the partisan political prism rather than the policy prism. It's, can I get, how do I get another vote mm. on my reelect? How do I ensure my position? What we're saying at forward party, look, it's important that everybody have a voice. It's important that people be listened to But we also, it's important to recognize that there are vast differences across this country. And the issues that are important in one place are not going to be as important in the other. So what Forward Party stands for is we stand for the rule of law, the respect for the Constitution, a willingness if someone wants to be a candidate with the Forward Party imprimatur or run as a Forward Party candidate when we get on the ballot in the various states, 
is willing to work across the aisle and a willingness to change the way that we elect, we choose our candidates, which means open primaries and ranked choice voting. Because until we change the stranglehold that the two major parties have on the process, we're never going to have different outcomes. And so what we're saying is those are the things we care about. Now, obviously, we care about climate change. That probably will be, we will identify some of the major issues that we feel should be worked on, but how you work on them should be left up to the candidates yeah. and to the local, to the states. Got it. They're going to want to do things differently. There's not a platform. There's not a platform in the mm-hmm. traditional sense of a party. Yeah. And that's, we're, we're providing a home for the better than 61% of the American people who are homeless right now politically. Yes. Who are not, they're registered independents or they're just not participating yeah. at all. And that's why we feel that ranked choice voting and open primaries are so essential because that means that everybody gets to vote. Your vote, everybody's vote counts. And what you've seen in practice is that it means that you don't have these bitter kinds of campaigns because nobody wants to be seen as a nasty person because they want to be at least number two on your list of choices. So it leads to different approaches. It leads to candidates really talking to their constituents because they have to talk to everybody, not just their base vote. Because really now... When you see in, in many of the, well, there are 500,000 elective offices across this nation. And on an average cycle, 70% of those are uncontested. We think everybody should have a choice. So we're focusing on the state and local level. I mean, those school board elections, those library commission elections, yeah. those local commissioners and mayors, they matter. They, they matter a lot. And they are also the pipeline for your legislators and then your congressional candidates and who knows, presidential candidates. So you've got to start, if you want to have a a viable party, you've got to start from the base. But you've also got to recognize and have confidence that the people who are at that base can think for themselves. Mm -hmm. And we want to give them that ability. We have volunteers from every state, but we have um, tens of thousands who've are actively volunteering. We have, we're in every state in the nation. We have 200 leaders who, across the country who are, have set up bank accounts and doing, starting to organize the process right. to get on the ballot. It's different in every state uh, to be recognized as a party. We're recognized here in Texas. We're recognized in Nevada. We are going to be recognized fairly shortly, we believe, in Florida and North Carolina. North Carolina. Yeah. We want to be on the ballot in 24 states by the end of this year and all 50 by uh, 2024, 2025. But we're not focused on the presidential. That's where everybody goes. What we're saying is, no, we're on the state and the local. We will will support Republicans, Democrats, or independents as long as they agree with our principles. Got it. Do you anticipate, though, that someone will attempt to run for president on the forward party Practically, it takes a lot of money yeah. to get on the ballots in all the states, yeah. about 50 states mm-hmm. by, by then. And, the, at least and you have the to be on all 50. Well, no, you have to be on enough state ballots to get to the requisite number of you know, electoral college votes. And that you can do that. But there is another organization that is focused on that, that is saying that they want to run a fusion ticket. And they'll depend on who the candidates of the two major parties are. If one of them is a reasonable person or someone, yeah. then they won't run because they don't want to be a spoiler. Right. But otherwise, they will do that. So that's fine. We'll leave yeah. it to them. That's going to be their thing and let them do it. We're, we're happy with that. We will concentrate on the state and the local 
And we'll, we'll endorse candidates at the congressional level as well. Uh, it's a two-part question, I suppose, or maybe it's a blend, because we were talking before when, when we first sat down around competing ideas and how to resolve them. In energy specifically, we talk about energy and alternative energy or energy and renewables. We talk about fossil fuels and the energy transition. And what it amounts to within the energy sector is the equivalent of a two-party system of, um, or actually it's almost in a sense, if you were to think about it, it's like Republicans versus libertarians, right? The, the libertarians would say, no, we're all, we're all, we all have similar ideals, just the same way as, um, perhaps like folks think about like across the aisle to renewables or across the aisle to fossil fuels and us versus them. And I've been working on how do we reframe this versus and realize like we've only got one container, it's just us. So how do you get resolution around competing ideas? You, you had to navigate this throughout your entire political career, and now you are creating a container for a new way to manage political movement. Can we talk about that a minute? Well, one of the things you have to do is get people, what I have found, what's, what's worked for me in the past on any issue, if it's a contentious issue. When, for instance, when we were doing a regulation on non-road diesel engines uh, at EPA, mm. which is a bigger problem for human health than actually their on-road cousins, I was told very early on by members on the Hill that I was going to kill the engine-making business, the, the, the uh, manufacturing in their particular district. But I found one company that said, yeah, we can do better. Yes, we can do this. And so I put them in the room with representatives from the environmental community, from EPA, from the Office of Management and Budget in Washington, which actually runs government. Everybody thinks it's the departments. No, you put your budget in and management and budget will tell you what you can spend your money on, no matter what you think. And I said, fix it. And they came up with an acceptable solution that has reduced the emissions from these tractors and backhoes and things by over 95%, some 97%. And it was the kind of thing where um, the Environmental Protection Agency came out and said it was probably the best thing done for human health since lead was taken out of gasoline. Wow. They got a lot of pressure from the other environmental groups saying you can't give the Bush administration that kind of a quote. And so they they wrote me back shortly thereafter saying, well, we've looked at the Clean Air Act and there may be some other things there that are better. So don't use the quote. So now I use it everywhere. But the problem was it undermined my ability to go to the White House to say it's worth it to work with environmental groups because you could get them on your side. But basically, they were on our side and the, the manufacturers were fine with it. But what you have to do is get people together who say this is a problem. If you, if you can get them to agree in a room and say, OK, is this a problem? Yes. OK, let, let's sit down and solve it. And as for the energy industry, it's not either or. We can't all of a sudden turn off all fossil fuels. It's not going to happen. You can't do it tomorrow and rely certainly on solar. It's still peak shaving, not base power. And we need to solve some of the problems of how do we store that energy? What do we do long term looking down the pipeline? What do we do with the batteries? How are we going to solve that issue? But immediately you need to look at how do we store it so so we can have it overnight. So we're going to have to have some form of fossil fuel. Now, I happen to be a proponent of nuclear energy Mm -hmm. and small modular reactors. Um, they're the only form of, of energy that produces no greenhouse gases or other regulated pollutants while producing power. I mean, while producing you, baseload power. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, baseload power is good and sustainable and clean. 
But anyway, um, be that as it may, we're still going to have to have those alternate forms until we can transition. Ultimately, hopefully, we will transition to a cleaner uh, form of energy. Who knows? Fusion finally may actually make an appearance. Hydrogen is making an appearance. There are a lot of exciting things going on right now on how to reduce our energy usage, which is going to be important to help with the grid. The other secret of all this that nobody talks about is the money we're going to have to put in the infrastructure, right? because the grid isn't prepared to handle all this new power we're bringing on, and particularly with wind and solar as well. They, well, solar not so much, but wind tends to be in places where they're not, they don't have access to the grid. So yes. you have to build a whole new system to reach them. So there's a lot, there's a lot of opportunity there, a lot of job potential there, uh, but we have to recognize it's the whole thing, and it's not going to happen overnight. Yeah. So we have to have a little bit of all of them. And frankly, I don't know a major utility that doesn't have investment in, in renewables. Yeah. Uh, they vary at how big, invest, how big an investment right. they make, but they all really have it. And, and I know before I left some of the corporate boards that I was on that they were finding in order to get the quality of candidate that they wanted to hire, they were being asked, what's your carbon footprint? Right. What are you doing about greenhouse gases? What by the candidates. By the candidates. Yeah of the quality that they wanted. Yeah. Mm. I'm glad that you brought that up. You know, just in the solar industry, we need some 6 million people to um, to achieve the scale that we believe is possible that, you know, Jigger and others esteem possible in the next five to 10 years. Mm-hmm. And that many of those are blue collar jobs. And we're, we're reshoring a lot of manufacturing that um, in the 90s and early 2000s was here manufacturing solar panels and wind, wind turbines. How do you envision the, the workforce of our energy future? Like we're in Texas, it's the heart of the energy world, they'd like to say. Mm-hmm. To your point, the candidates are increasingly climate conscious on both sides. Where do you see the opportunity uh, or perhaps the gap in meeting the need for bodies at, to tackle this problem? Well, the gap would be on the educational level, uh-huh. on getting more students into STEM uh, so that they recognize uh, and understand and can talk the language, yeah. but also to understand that, that the opportunities are as diverse as they are today. Yes. I mean, you need everybody in this. Right. It's not just, you don't have to be not an engineer. Yep. You don't have to be a scientist. You need front office people. Mm -hmm. You need people who are manufacturing. You need people who are putting these things together and working on them. Mm -hmm. Um, So you need every kind of, you need mechanics, you need everything. So it's a a huge opportunity. And when I look at some of the things that are going on, when you see what China is doing and exporting and trying to be the the go-to country for um, solar panels because of their control over rare earth minerals. Right. I mean... The Bering Sea is opening up. We think there are a lot of energy opportunities up there and rare earth minerals. Um, If we'd sign on to the the law of the sea, we could actually have a voice up there, but we aren't yet. But there are things we can do. And there are other ways of manufacturing, just as as they're finding other things to use in manufacturing solar panels. There are for, uh, I mean, for for wind turbines, for the blades to make them a little more efficient. there's the same thing. We can do that with solar panels and just the way we're finding other ways to produce energy. Small modular reactors yeah. have a different way of producing the nuclear energy, right. use different things. 
than the traditional big facility. You know, there are exciting new ideas coming forward. Yeah. And that's really, nobody, nobody can do better than the United States in being entrepreneurial, I love frankly. That. Yeah. We are the best at it. We're also the best at, we're the most highly efficient country. We can be the best at manufacturing. Mm-hmm. We can be the best at all this if yeah. we understand that this is the future yeah. and we're willing to go out and recruit and particularly recruit diverse candidates. Yeah. We need a diversity of people at the problem-solving table yeah. because there's no one group that has all the answers. Right. And we need that diversity. We need to be reaching out to those tech schools and, yeah. and others to encourage people to look at the energy industry because there are so many jobs and they are so diverse. Governor Whitman, I have one final question for you. Okay. And we'll go enjoy this, uh, this fancy gathering happening outside. It could be said, certainly here in Houston, it would resonate as true, uh, that energy is the currency of America. Oh, you can't exist without it. That's right. <laughs> Anywhere, so, not just America. Yeah. And not that I'm hypothesizing that you could be uh, or are positioning yourself as, as such, but if you were the president of the forward party uh, on a ticket and you had the ability to decide our energy future, how would you spend that currency, the energy that we, uh, the resources, the, the vast resources we control and, and have the ability to control, to bridge us to what I think is our desired future, a decarbonized grid and a, and a clean energy future for a healthy, for both a healthy economic and personal well-being? Tough question. I know. Certainly, I will. Um, I would bring in the people who have been in the industry and know what's going on, as well as the scientists who can tell what the impact of the pollution and things are going to be, uh, to, and make it a priority so that people understand that huge, massive amounts of money that we are spending to recover from storms from climate change. Yes. Uh, Not to mention the loss of life. I'm just talking about the financial impact, Uh which is billions of dollars after each one of these storms. I mean, tens of billions of dollars Mm -hmm. and drought and fires and things that are happening because Mother Nature is kind of mad at us. She's letting us know that. So what you'd want to do is bring together the scientists, but with people from the industry who know how it actually works and help people understand the manufacturing opportunities that we have here just the basics as well as the entrepreneurial opportunities are wrapped around it and make it a priority for the country and sell it as a way that, look, this is jobs. And I know this administration has tried to do that to a large extent. And they have with some of the legislation they've gotten passed. I mean, they should get credit for the the bipartisan legislation they were able to get done on the Hill that's pumping out all this money now. You just want to make sure it's it's devoted to the right projects yeah. and spent well. But that's the kind of thing that anybody, any new president really has to do and should do. I'm really honored to have an opportunity to sit down with you face to face. Oh, my pleasure. To get this thank much you. time with you. And uh, I really want to uh, say thank you to you and the leadership of the Forward Party, because I believe that we'll link to some of the things that Kate on your team shared that give a better explanation of just fundamental change that matters. Uh, Examples like the recent voting in Alaska on how uh, ranked choice voting works. Uh, When I talk to people about sort of the principles of the forward party and introduce ranked choice voting, it's as though I'm talking about some foreign concept. Yeah. Well, that's what you say is it's instant runoff. Yeah. Ranked choice voting is instant runoff. Yeah. 
And that they, people understand. They understand yeah. runoffs. And when you say, well, it's just instant, continuous runoff until yeah. you have a candidate that got 51%. Yeah. So I appreciate the, the effort that goes into it. And uh, on behalf of our listeners, I want to thank you for your time. No, thank you. And as you say, you can't get that back. So I appreciate your investment in our education. Thank you. Good to talk to you. Well, thank you so much, Christine Todd Whitman, for the insight into your illustrious career and your background and all the reasons why you are making the moves and choosing the battles that you are right now. I want to thank you as well for listening all the way through, dear listener, because it is not lost on me that I don't even have a show or presence or platform without someone to speak to that you've put in your earbuds and you press play today. It really, truly means a ton to me. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. I hope that you're subscribed. I hope that if you're a first time listener and you've listened this far, thank you. And we've earned your attention. I hope now we'll earn your subscribe and just take a moment to rate the show. If you, in fact, do believe that it deserves a five-star enthusiastic rating and review, well, it helps others just like you find us. They're groping in the darkness, wondering how to level up their career and uh, make meaning in the clean energy transition. Well, you've just helped them one step further through your generosity and kindness and sharing the show. I want to thank once again, our sponsors for helping make this content free to you each and every week. If you'd like to learn more about our sponsors or how you could partner with us to reach thousands of solar warriors and clean tech champions twice a week, you can go to mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle. <laughs>